Reformation history is full of high drama, not least in the life and ministry of John Calvin, the Genevan reformer. In 1538, on Easter Sunday, Calvin and his mentor, William Farrell, led services in the two primary churches in Geneva. However, due to overreach from the civil authorities into the life of the church, the two reformers decided they would refuse to serve communion on that Easter Sunday. As you might imagine, this caused quite a stir. It wasn't a popular move as it concerned the Genevan council, city council. They were furious. And at once, they removed these two well-known pastors from their pulpits and said they had three days to get out of town. No severance package for them. Calvin moved to Strasbourg and spent three very happy years of ministry under the mentorship of Martin Bucer, the great Strasbourg reformer. But it was in 1540 that things dramatically changed and shifted in Geneva, both politically and in the churches. And the new city council begged Calvin to return to Geneva. He returned in 1541 and was appointed pastor of the notable St. Pierre's Cathedral. You might imagine the tension and the expectation after Calvin ascended the pulpit. What would he say? What would he preach? How would he respond to this banishment and then being asked to come back? Without hesitation and without a fuss, Calvin opened his Bible, announced the text, and began preaching the very next passage where he, had, where he had left off three days before, or three years before, rather. Calvin was an expository preacher. He was committed to preaching all of Scripture for the spiritual benefit of the church. And it is in that Reformed tradition that we continue in here at Christ Church Presbyterian, preaching verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the scripture. And it's to the book of Romans that we return this morning after not a three-year hiatus, but a two-month hiatus. In November, in November, rather, you'll remember that we finished chapter 10. And so this morning, we pick up in chapter 11, where we left off. A continuation of the Apostle Paul's inspired teaching on the spiritual condition and future of Israel a subject that many Christians today are confused about, not least because of a profound misunderstanding of this very chapter, Romans chapter 11. And so, if you would please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and beginning in verse 1 this morning, we will seek to cover verses 1 through 6. Would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, as we continue in this magisterial epistle from the inspired Apostle Paul, we ask that you would drill down these truths into our hearts and minds, that we would hear it and believe it and respond to it by grace through faith, all to the glory of your holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, interpreting Romans 11 isn't easy. And I'll tell you, uh, coming to Romans 9 was certainly challenging as we dealt with very lofty issues as it concerned predestination and an election. Uh, but as we come here to Romans 11, we come to another very challenging chapter of this glorious book. Over the centuries, it's been the source of much discussion and disagreement and confusion in the church. Is Paul teaching here that only a remnant of the Jews will be saved according to God's sovereign electing grace? Or, as the dispensationalists understand it, will all physical or ethnic Israel be saved in the end? Are we to understand that there are two peoples of God? That is, Israel and Gentile believers, or just one people of God, the church, constituted of both Jews and Gentiles, people from all over the world? Or do Paul's words foster, uh, or, or rather, another question that's asked, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, will this ignite some kind of a mass revival of Jews in the end days, the end times? Or do Paul's words foster a less grand expectation, pointing rather to a theology of remnant, a theology of remnant. Remnant meaning a small remaining part of something. Dear ones, should we interpret every war in Israel as having prophetic implications? Should we be reading the book of Revelation in the New York Times? Side by side? Many do. Should every headline related to Israel make us wonder if the end is near? Should the shifting of political and military power in the nation of Israel from 1948 to the present day inform our Bible reading, especially in the matters of prophecy and eschatology? When the apostle states in verse 32 that he will have, that God will have mercy on all, what does he mean by that? Again, is his plan to save all ethnic Jews, even apart from faith in Christ? This is what many espouse and, and teach. These are questions that have run through people's minds when they read Romans 11 for centuries. My prayer is that as we walk through this chapter over the next several weeks and months, things will become clearer, especially as we recall all that Paul has taught in the previous two chapters. As 
we have understood chapters 9 through 11 as all asking the Israel question. What about Israel as it concerns God's promises, as it concerns God's faithfulness, as it concerns the truth of God's word, as it concerns all these things? What about Israel? Paul is answering this question in chapters 9 through 11. And so if you're taking notes this morning, there are three points uh, that we will seek to understand, uh, uh, points that I have drawn straight out of, of the text. Number one, God has not comprehensively rejected his people Israel. That's the first point. God has not comprehensively rejected his people Israel. Number two, God always has a remnant chosen by grace. God always has a remnant chosen by grace. And number three, God saves by sovereign grace, not on the basis of human works. God saves by sovereign grace and not on the basis of human works. First of all, God has not comprehensively rejected his people, Israel, verses 1 through 4. You'll remember, of course, that Paul was a Jew. And Paul loved his people. He wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to believe in the promised Messiah, the one who came to save them from the power and penalty of their sins. You'll perhaps remember at the beginning of chapter 9 and at the start of chapter 10 that Paul expresses deep sorrow and extreme anguish over the spiritual state of his kinsmen. His heart's desire was that they would be saved. They had so many blessings from God, so many blessings by which they could know God and serve God, and yet they fell on deaf ears and unbelieving hearts. Rather than putting their faith in God's promises fulfilled in Christ and receiving God's gift of mercy and righteousness in Him, they put trust in their own righteousness, which as we understand human righteousness, it is a flawed righteousness. It is a faulty righteousness, an imperfect righteousness, really an unrighteousness. They put their hope in their own flawed righteousness and rejected the promised Messiah. Paul writes in chapter 10 and verse 3 that they, quote, sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to God's righteousness. They sought to establish their own righteousness and did not submit to to God's righteousness. Paul, you see, longed for the salvation of his countrymen, even as we long for the salvation of our lost family members, our lost countrymen, as it were, our lost neighbors, our lost friends. His discussion of the spiritual condition of Israel, therefore, is not a cold and callous one. It's not just a, a theological one, a sort of detached ivory tower uh, a discussion. This, no, is, is heartfelt for Paul. He longs for the salvation of his people. He weeps over them. He longs for them to repent of their sin and to put their faith in Christ. Moreover, the apostle, you remember, wanted to make clear that God's word had not failed as it concerned Israel. Some were wondering if it had. After all, wasn't Israel God's chosen nation? But Paul underscored in chapter 9 that God's word had not failed 
and his promises are always steadfast and true. The problem, you see, was not with God's promises, but with Israel's rebellion. The problem was not with God's faithfulness, but with Israel's unbelief, for which they were culpable. And as we learn throughout chapter 9, no one deserves salvation. Let me say that again. No one deserves salvation. God does not look through the portals of time from eternity and see good people and then choose and elect those people for himself. God, who knows all things, knows that all people are born in sin with original sin and have actual sin when they come of age. All are guilty. No one deserves salvation. All deserve God's wrath and judgment. We live in a everyone gets a trophy world when everybody keeps score. Even the four-year-olds at the basketball game, right? Everybody's keeping score. Everybody's keeping score. Everybody gets a trophy, but everybody's keeping score. And when someone doesn't get a trophy from time to time in their adult world, wherever it is, they get very upset and they want a trophy. This is the world that we live in, but this is not the way it works when it comes to the justice and the judgment of God. And every one of us will one day stand before him. And God does not grade on a curve. If he did, he wouldn't have sent his son into the world to accomplish redemption for sinners like us. God is holy and he's just and he is thus unable to grade on a curve. He is holy, holy, holy. And so he sent his holy son into the world to live a holy life and to give himself as a sacrifice, a holy sacrifice for our sins. This is the good news of the gospel that Paul is proclaiming in the book of Romans. And this gospel is rooted in grace. No one deserves salvation. And no one can earn salvation. No one can earn salvation. And while secondary causes are important and meaningful, ultimately it's God's purpose of election that must stand. Romans 9.15, For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is God's grace and sovereignty at work. We learned in chapter 9 that salvation is not something mankind earns through human merit or performance. Salvation is that which God gives through sovereign grace in Christ to all who believe. Salvation is of the Lord. It is never on the basis of works. Therefore, God's saving, foreknowing, electing love, it spans before time. It meets us, undeserving sinners, in time, and goes with us for all time. For nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Paul begins this new section in Romans 11 with another rhetorical question. He has lots of rhetorical questions in chapters 9 and 10. This is his way of instruction. But he asks another rhetorical question concerning God's relationship with Israel. Look there in verse 1. He asks, has God rejected his people? Has God rejected his people? In other words, due to Israel's consistent unbelief and disobedience, 
Has God cast off the nation of Israel entirely, comprehensively, completely? Some may have wrongly come to that conclusion after reading Paul's arguments in the previous two chapters. Paul wants to set the record, record straight, however. He responds with an emphatic, by no means. Has God rejected his people? By no means. And to prove this point, Paul gives two evidences that God has not rejected his people entirely. Number one, Paul points to himself, doesn't he? Paul points to himself. Look with me at verse one. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul points to himself, to his own conversion as a Jew, as a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. For I myself am an Israelite, he writes, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul is exhibit A, that God has not cast off all Israel, even those who in the past have been wickedly rebellious against him. Not only has God not cast off all Israel, he has not cast off all Israel, many of them who have lived very, very, very wicked lives. Like Paul. Remember, Paul was formerly called Saul of Tarsus. And he was the chief persecutor of the church in Jerusalem and beyond. If you were a Christian and you saw Paul at the Jerusalem Piggly Wiggly, you would go to another aisle. You would, if Paul was, if Saul was in the freezer section, you would head over uh, to the bakery. Uh, you would not want to run into him. Saul of Tarsus. We learn in the book of Acts that he breathed murderous threats against the church. He dragged Christian men and women out of their homes and imprisoned them and stood approvingly over the martyrdom of Stephen. But God had mercy upon him. God had mercy upon him while traveling on the road to Damascus to persecute more Christians. Paul met the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory, and he received grace, not judgment. He received mercy, not justice. He received forgiveness and not condemnation. This man who was so wicked of the tribe of Benjamin, the son of Abraham, a Jew, he received the saving gift of righteousness and eternal life from the hands of Christ. God indeed had not entirely rejected his people. And Paul is evidence of that fact. You see why he brings this up. And oh, how the Lord reinforces this wonderful truth that we considered, I believe it was last Lord's Day evening or the one before that in in, in Mark chapter 2, that uh, 
Christ did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. He did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. Paul, who was Saul, persecutor of the church. If you are here this morning and you think that your past sins somehow remove you from even the possibility of forgiveness or having a, a right relationship with God, I am here to tell you this morning that God's grace is sufficient for you. That God's blood, that Christ's blood rather, washes away all sin. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter what you've thought, no matter what you haven't done or haven't said or haven't thought in your life, know this, God is a God of grace, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy to those who look to Christ by grace through faith and put their hope and their trust in him. The gospel, it is very deep. Theologians and philosophers have been writing about it and talking about it and will do so until the end of time. And many, many books will be written and have been written. But it's also very simple. Simple enough for a child to understand. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. For the Bible tells me that Jesus gave himself for me to pay for my sins, to pay my debt, that I would go free and that I would have life in him. And so Paul uses himself as this example that God is not, has not cast off and rejected his people entirely. Of course, there would be many other believing Jews in the church at Rome as well. Uh, but here Paul uses himself as an example. Look at the second evidence that Paul uses, however. The second evidence that Paul gives comes from Old Testament history, specifically from 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, the riveting story of Elijah facing off against the prophets of Baal. What a story. Uh, to give you some context, uh, as you remember this story, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel are ruling in Israel with a wicked and iron fist. Sometimes people will say things like this, I just can't believe that things have gotten so bad in our country. America has fallen so low and look at our leadership and look at the deceit and look at all the terrible things that are happening. Read 1 Kings 18 and 19 and you will think that things are pretty rosy right now in America. And by the way, things are not rosy in America. But comparatively, and when we come to these chapters, we see that though God gave his law to Moses and to his people and God's covenant promises are true and, and steadfast and God had his prophets there to preach that truth, things had gotten so bad in Israel. The kingdom had divided and kings were almost always wicked for the whole history of Israel in both kingdoms after the division. Ahab and Jezebel are considered the most wicked, persecuting and killing God's prophets. So Elijah requests that all Israel gather on Mount Carmel along with 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah. He wants to show 
who is the true and living God. So he tells the false prophets of Baal to prepare a bull for sacrifice and to call upon their gods to bring down fire upon it and consume it. And he said, I'll do, I'll, I'll do this afterwards. You go first. So they set up their sacrifice and began calling upon their God from morning until evening. These prophets of Baal cried about and they even cut themselves. But there was only silence. And then the text says in 1 Kings 18, 27, and I'll have to say, I love this. Elijah started mocking them. He says, cry aloud to your God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Or he is on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be awakened. Well, of course, nothing happened. Then it was Elijah's turn. He prepared the sacrifice, and three times he ordered for water to be poured upon the sacrifice. And he called upon the name of the Lord, and fire came down from heaven and consumed everything, the offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, and all the water in the trench. It licked it all up, and it was gone. What a victory for the Lord. All of the prophets of Baal were killed. But later, Queen Jezebel sent a message to Elijah, a threat that she will not rest until Elijah is dead like the prophets of Baal. Oh, just show a miracle and everyone will believe and everybody will follow the Lord, right? Just show a miracle. That's not how it works. Our hearts will be in a status of unbelief apart from the grace of God. And Jezebel did not change her mind because of this great miracle. She wanted to kill Elijah. And people didn't change their mind about Jesus after they saw him do miracles. They wanted to do what? To kill him. It's the human heart. You say, how can things be so bad? How can man be so wicked? The Bible has categories for this. And so Elijah, the text says, becomes afraid and discouraged. And he goes into the wilderness. Do you ever get afraid or discouraged and want to go into the wilderness, wherever that may be? Well, if you do, you're like every other Christian. And you're like Elijah. For we are weak creatures. And it was in that desolate place that Elijah said those words that Paul quotes in our text for this morning. Verse 3. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left, and they seek my life. This was an accurate and fair description of the leaders of Israel. They were a wicked, idolatrous, and rebellious lot. Elijah was discouraged, thinking he was the only one left who trusted God in Israel. But what is God's reply to him? Look there with me in verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. What an encouraging word from the Lord. Elijah was not, indeed, the only one left. And God had not cast off his people entirely. No, in fact, there were many 
who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Paul mentions 7,000, quoting 1 Kings 19.18. Whether the number 7,000 is a rounded number or a, a, a number conveying the perfection of God's electing grace, uh, that His purpose of election in Israel will stand, we cannot be sure. But the main thing to take away here is that God has not and never has rejected the nation of Israel. He has always had a remnant saved by His sovereign grace. Let us remember this word, remnant. Those 7,000 seems like a lot compared to the one prophet Elijah. It is a small number compared to the entire population of Israel at the time. Listen to what John Murray says here. Quote, Notwithstanding the apostasy of Israel as a whole, yet there was a remnant though only a remnant, whom God kept for himself and preserved from the idolatry of Baal's worship. This example is adduced to prove that God had not cast off Israel as his chosen and beloved people. The import, therefore, is that the salvation of a small remnant from the total mass is sufficient to prove that the people as a nation had not been cast off, end quote. And this, of course, leads us to our second point that God always has a remnant chosen by grace. God always has a remnant chosen by grace. Look at me at verse 5. Paul writes, for their encouragement and for ours, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Isn't this a clarifying verse? Paul is explaining that just as there was a remnant in Elijah's day, chosen by God's sovereign electing grace, so too in his own day there is a remnant chosen by God's sovereign electing grace. And dear ones, this is true of our day as well. Can I say that again? This is true of our day as well. Because if we are honest, at times it can be very discouraging to watch our culture in such moral decline. Moreover, it's hard to see the Christian church capitulating to wicked ideologies of the world, becoming woke and so forth, uh, bowing down to the world, buckling under the pressure of moral compromise. Rather than fight against the moral and sexual revolution, the church seems to be looking for ways to get on board with it. At times we can feel like Elijah, wondering who is resisting the lies of Baal and refusing to bow down to the idols of our culture? Does this not reinforce the importance of the local church? So that we are reminded every Lord's Day as we sing God's praise, as we encourage one another, as we build one another up in love, as we sit under collectively the preaching of God's word and together come to the table. Oh, I am so, one of, the, one of the good things that came out of COVID. COVID was a terrible, horrible time. So many terrible things, but the Lord brings good out of evil, right? Praise God for that. One of those things is the way that we administer communion now. I'm so thankful for that. It used to be that we handed the plates uh, in the aisles, and the plates were passed. That's fine, okay, no, no problem. But during COVID, for safety protocols, we decided to have everybody, everybody come forward and hand each person the elements. And every Lord's Day, I hear it from you, 
I certainly see it every Lord's Day. So do the elders. The streams of believers coming forward to receive the body and blood of Christ spiritually and yet really by faith. And by this action, confessing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in His grace, in His forgiveness, saying, I stand with Christ. I am a soldier in His army. I am a member of His body. I'm with Christ. The world's going this way, but I'm with Christ going the opposite direction. And that's what coming to the table does, whether you're sitting in the seats or coming forward. Either way, but I love the coming forward because I see everyone streaming forward to receive from Christ his body and blood for salvation. So glorious. At times, we can indeed feel like Elijah alone. But God says to us here, there is a remnant who is not bowing down. There is a remnant who is not bowing down, not just in this room, of course, but all over the low country and all over the world. There's a remnant that's not bowing down. A remnant in China a remnant in North Africa, a remnant in the Middle East, a remnant all over the world, Christians standing firm, not bowing down to the Baals. And God is saving His people, and He's doing so through the faithful preaching of His Word and administration of the sacraments and prayer and through the institution of the church that He Himself established. God is doing this. And so we ought with confidence to go forward in our lives, knowing that while at times it seems discouraging, the culture seems so powerful, and the media has such powerful to bring these lies through the screens, we know that there is a remnant, there is a 7,000 that will not bow the knee to Baal. Amen? There is a 7,000, and we are in that 7,000. And even if the majority comes against us and brings persecution... We know there is a 7,000 that will not bow the knee to Baal, no matter what. You think of that wonderful scene in Daniel when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are there with all of the important people from all over the land, and, and Nebuchadnezzar has made his great 90-foot golden statue, and he says, at uh, the sound of the musicians, everyone will bow down. And you can imagine this large group, we don't know how big, but let's just say a thousand people, all these dignitaries and, and, and VIPs, they all bow, and there are three of them standing up. Get that vision in your head. Three of them standing up, all of them bowing down. And that is what's happening in our culture right now. So many are bowing down to the bales of our culture. We are called to stand. That's an important part of this text. There are those who will not bow. Beloved, we were never promised a majority in this world. The story of Christianity is one of suffering and persecution and faith in the midst of tribulation. Our Lord, Lord told, told us that there would be many troubles in this world, but that we should take heart because He has overcome the world. John Fesco writes this, quote, even during Israel's darkest days, times when idolatry and wickedness flowed like water in the streets, God still preserved a faithful remnant for himself. 
Beloved, the same is true today. God is faithful to his word. He's faithful to his purpose. And nothing can separate us from his love. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and following. You know it. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or sword or danger? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things that Christians experience, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Dear ones, we are chosen by grace, we are saved by grace, and we are kept by grace. And that leads us to the final point. God saves by sovereign grace, not on the basis of human works. Paul writes in verse 6, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is what Paul has been saying in one way or another throughout the entire letter since the beginning. And here the gospel is highlighted once again. It's good news. It's good news that we need to hear every Sabbath, for we are so wired in our flesh to forget this news, to rely upon our own works, to put confidence in our own flesh for acceptance with God, because acceptance with people in this world is often based on works. But salvation, dear ones, is of the Lord, for God's remnant are loved and chosen before time in Christ, saved and redeemed in time through faith, and kept and loved for all time in Christ. We are not saved on the basis of works, but by God's amazing grace. Paul is making this point over and over and over again because Israel had missed it over and over and over again, and so often we do as well. In Romans 3, verse 19, Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. God gave the law not as a means for you to obey and be saved, but as a means to show you and me our sin and to show us our need of a Savior. And so it's not through the works of the law that we will be justified, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin, Paul writes. But then he writes these wonderful words in verse 21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. You could also say the righteousness of God received through faith 
in Christ Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This is what the Lord has done, that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In this passage, we learn that God has not abandoned Israel And dear ones, he has not abandoned you. He calls out to you now by his grace and his gospel and that outward call through his minister. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe this gospel of free grace. Put your hope and your faith and your trust in Christ and his perfect work alone for your salvation. Turn from your sin. Turn from your idols. If you have been living your life bowed down to idols like Baal, saying deceitful things to you about what will ultimately give you joy and pleasure and happiness and perhaps even a relationship with God, get up off of your knees and stop bowing down to Baal. Put your hope and your faith and your trust in Christ and receive His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy. And dear Christians, May we, as we fight against temptation, not bow the knee to the bales of our culture. May we be careful not to give in to all the pressure to become like the world, to be friends with the world. To be friends with the world is to be a what? An enemy of God, 1 John says. Just this past week, uh, my wife and I watched the movie Soul Surfer. You ever seen that? Soul Surfer. It's about a young girl uh, who had her arm bit off when she was 13 years old by a big shark. And it, it bit through the surfboard. It bit her arm off right at the shoulder. And it's the story of her extraordinary faith in Christ in response to it. It's extraordinary. Not long after she became famous for her surfing as a one-armed surfer. And of course, in the Christian world, as a follower of Christ, she received a sponsorship from Rip Curl, which is a very famous surfing brand. And I guess it was the fall of last year, she said something really crazy, that men shouldn't be able to compete in women's sports. So outrageous, right? Uh, it's not only, uh, well, it's all sports now that are being impacted by these irrational uh, ideas. And so apparently men have been competing in women's surfing competitions and winning. And one of them was modeling bikinis for Rip Curl. And uh, Bethany Hamilton resigned her what probably was a fairly lucrative contract with Rip Curl. She was not going to bow down to Baal. Apparently, Rip Curl received such backlash from this, they quietly took down all of these ridiculous pictures. And uh, who knows how they're going to proceed in in the future, but Bethany Hamilton standing up for Christ over and over and over again against the culture, against the drift, It is what we are all called to do.
to believe the gospel and to walk by grace through faith. And, and the final point is this. Let's live by faith and not in fear. Let us live by faith and not in fear. Let us trust that the Lord is at work, that he's carrying out his purposes and that there is a remnant. We can live with confidence. Young person at school who has people that are uh, saying things and, and making fun of you for being a Christian, stand firm. Stand firm. Don't bow the knee to Baal. Be confident in knowing that there's a remnant. You say, well, where's the remnant? They're right here. And they're all over the world. Sometimes you feel like you're alone. And sometimes you will be called to stand alone because the majority is against what you believe. But stand firm and do not live in fear. The Lord has 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. We have every reason, dear ones, to live confidently, humbly, and faithfully in Christ. He is our Savior. He is our Lord. And He is our faithful King. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for this passage, which teaches us so much about your love for Israel and for the salvation of sinners in Israel. Uh, but Lord, it also teaches us about your love for all. Uh, and uh, we thank you for your love for us, uh, those whom you have engrafted into the vine. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified through our worship, through our lives, as we seek to live in you and to trust you and to live by faith and not by fear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.